Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord, we are here today, this morning, because we want to hear from you. Lord, our, our hearts are open. Our, our minds are quieted. Lord, we are ready. We've dedicated this time specifically to hear from you this morning, Lord, through your word. So, Lord, please take this time. Lord, take these words, take your words, and, and knit them together into a masterpiece this morning, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you remember, last time, that was two weeks ago, um, we were in chapter 16, and one of the things that we looked at specifically were the three feast days that, that Moses was pointing out that God had established these three specific feast days. And there was, there was two things that really kind of jumped out at me about these feast days. One of them was that they were mandatory for all of the, the, the uh, Hebrew men. They were mandatory. So no matter where they were, what they were doing at that time of year, they were mandated to go. Oh, that feels bad to say that word, doesn't it? They were required <laughs> to go to these feast days. And, you know, whenever we talk about, you know, someone saying, you must do this, you have to do that, there's a part of us that's just like pushes back against that. It's like, there's, and even when it's God, actually, even when it's God telling us that we have to do something, there is a little bit of us that, that rebels against this. There's still some rebellion in some of our hearts that says, well, you can't tell me what to do. And God is really the only one who really can tell you what to do. And, and he deserves to be able to be able to be able to tell us, I don't know, you know what I mean, to be able to tell us what to do. But if you, when you look at these, this is what really struck me about these feast days, is even though he was saying you are required to, to come and celebrate these feast days at the place where God has appointed it, it says so either at the tabernacle or later on when they build the temple, at the temple in Jerusalem, uh, what we see is there was uh, just like feasting attached to it. So it wasn't just like, oh man, we got to go to the, we got to go to this thing again. It was like a feast that they brought an offering and they would often and many times bring their families with them and they would come and it was a time of feasting together with their families and with the Lord. But God says in his infinite wisdom, I know how busy all of you are. So if I don't require this, you're just going to not do it at some point. And I love where God says, I'm going to require it of you, but you're going to really love it and benefit from it. And I love that. So when you get to a place where you feel like God is, is requiring something of you, you should know that God isn't requiring it because he's mean. He's requiring it of you because he knows you will be ultimately blessed by it. And if he doesn't sometimes require, you may not do it. Your life gets busy or complicated or whatever. You come up with whatever excuse to not do what God is requiring you to do. The other thing that I see that I go through these feasts is the word rejoice over and over again. So again, it wasn't the drudgery of keeping a feast. It was a time to rejoice. They were together. There was food. They were worshiping God. Their family was there. And he says, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice over and over and over again. It, you know, when I was a kid, my family went to church all the time. 
Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, we were always in church. And I always remember thinking, man, why do we have to go to church so much? Well, it's not until I become saved and an adult that I can look at this and say, you know what? It's not that I have to go to church. It's that I get to go to church so much. Now, I bet you right now there are some people in some other countries that are wishing they had the freedom to get to go to church as much as we get to go to church. And so if you look at it in the sense like, oh, it's Sunday, we got to go to church, and then we'll do all this other stuff, think about it like this. We get to go. We get to come here. We get to gather with our family. There is a feasting. Sometimes it's a literal feasting, but there's a feasting on the word, and we should come here ready to celebrate, and we should go out rejoicing. Amen? If you ever get to the point where you're just like, oh, I got to go to church again. Take a look at that and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not that I have to go. It's that I get to go to church today. I get to go and worship the one who created me. Not just created me, but gang, knows your name. Knows your name. Out of all of the people he created, and he created, how many people did he create, actually? All of them. All, right, all. He knows all their names. In fact, he knows, the Bible says, every hair on their head. Terry, even yours. That's right. doesn't take long for God to know Terry. Just because God requires you to do something doesn't mean it's a bad thing. The idea that, you know, sometimes when people get into this idea of the Old Testament, this is why it's really important to study the Old Testament. I heard somebody say the other day that their church only studies the New Testament. I was like, what a loss. What a loss. Because you don't have the opportunity to look into the Old Testament. And so then you, you hear sometimes of people like, man, well, I don't know, the God of that Old Testament, he's mean. There's this idea that the God of the Old Testament is this like kid with a magnifying glass burning ants. I haven't done that, but a friend told me about it one time. <laughs> the idea that God is mean, if you don't get into the Old Testament especially and look and what do we see? We see grace, we see compassion, we see love and patience. We see that God demonstrates his love all throughout the Old Testament. And then that rolls into the New Testament where he says, you know what? I love you so much that I will send my only son to die in your place so that we can be together forever. That's not a mean God. It's an amazing God. That's a God that loves beyond any way that I can even think to understand how much God loves us, how much he has loved his creation from the beginning. He loves us so much. Well, we left off in chapter 16 at verse 18. So let's take a look at that. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. So if you remember, they're going in, they're preparing to go into the the land 
of Canaan, which God is giving them. And he's saying, when you go in, you shall appoint judges. Now, what's really interesting to me is if you read this in Hebrew text, it actually makes more of a point of saying, because this kind of sounds like you are to appoint judges. But really what he's saying is, I'm going to choose judges for you, and then you appoint them, or then you look at them as judges or the people who will help you decide on civil matters. But in Hebrew, the emphasis is, I'm choosing them, not you. You're not choosing them. I'm choosing them. You respect them. That's the idea. And, and, and who's a better judge of character than God? Because God sees through the external and he sees the inside, doesn't he? And so God is saying, I'm going to pick guys that are going to be good judges. They're going to judge justly. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. God is going to pick just judges. And you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. For the bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. And so, first of all, what does this say that? What does God know about what's going to happen based on this first and maybe the second verse, 18 and 19, that we looked at. Well, if he's saying, when you go into the land, appoint judges, he's indicating that you're going to need judges because he wouldn't say appoint them if he didn't know that they were going to need them. And what does that mean? Why would they need judges? Because conflicts are going to arise. He's already seeing into the future and saying, you will have conflicts. So in order to handle them in the correct way, appoint the judges that I am choosing for you. And then he reminds them also, don't take bribes. Don't take bribes. Um, I, try, I looked up the word bribe um, to see you know, what it meant in the original language in Hebrew. And you know what it means? Bribe. They knew all the way back then what a bribe was. A bribe. It was like, and later I was, and in, in Proverbs it says, well, what does it say? I wrote it down. It says, a wicked man accepts a bribe behind the back to pervert the, pervert the ways of, the, of justice. And so it says in Proverbs, and he's saying right here, they'd be like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you put, put it right here, and then maybe this will go your way. Perverting justice. And so he reminds them not to take a bribe because it will blind justice. At that, you know, what do you think of when we, talk, when we say it will blind justice? Blind justice. You know the statue? You guys know, what I, you know that statue? The statue of justice holding the scales and has a blindfold on. It's supposed to indicate that justice is blind to any other influences except for the facts. You cannot, uh, uh, you cannot um, sway justice by any other means, especially a bribe. This was a thing all the way from the very beginning. They knew that a bribe or a gift or a palm oil was another word. <laughs> the greasing the palm that that was a way that you could pervert justice, sway it to your side. And he's saying, be careful, that don't do that. Um, so he's warning them of that right here. You shall follow what is altogether just. <sighs> All right. In, in verse, what is this? Verse 20. You shall follow, you see, you shall follow what is altogether just. That's an England tr English translation that just really, really falls short, in my opinion. In Hebrew, it says, righteousness righteousness you shall pursue. That is way weightier than just, well, you shall follow what is altogether just. He's saying, righteousness, righteousness, pursue 
righteousness. And do you know what it means to pursue righteousness? Well, first of all, the word pursue, it means to chase after. Not just be like, saunter or stroll after, but chase after righteousness. That is what he's calling not just, not just righteousness. He's repeating the word, so it's emphasized to the nth degree. Righteousness, righteousness, pursue, chase after righteousness. So, what does that mean? How do you chase after righteousness? Righteousness is like one of those Bible words. It's like righteousness, of course. I'm going to pursue righteousness. I'm going to chase after, even though I've broken down the word, chase after righteousness. And some of you are going like, what's that? Do you know what righteousness means? I'll give you a few. Righteousness, it means to be blameless. Do you know what? These are the characteristics of righteousness, blameless. Do you know that doesn't mean perfect? Okay, so if you have ever thought, well, how are we supposed to be blameless? I can't be perfect. It doesn't mean perfect. It means non-stick cooking pan. Nothing sticks to you. That's what that means. Blameless means that nothing sticks to you. So if someone throws an accusation at you, it hits you and slides off because you are blameless. There is no accusation that can be hurled at you that will stick to you. We are supposed to chase after uh, a state of blamelessness so that people, if they try to accuse you of something, if they go, you know what I heard about Jan? This and this and this. And Richard would be like, no, that can't be true because I know Jan and that would never, she would never do that. Blamelessness. You speak the truth. You're honest. This is a characteristic of righteousness. You're honest. Honest. How many of you tell the truth all the time? Well, that's a trick question. Don't put your hands up. <laughs> but we are supposed to pursue, chase after being honest. So if someone comes up and says, hey, I just got my hair cut. What do you think? <laughs> and it's horrible. You say, what do you think? <laughs> and they go, I love it. And then you say, well, that... I'm glad that you love it. It works great. Why don't you go ask someone else what... You know, it can be tough. I totally get it. I totally understand when someone comes up and you don't want to hurt their feelings, but we are supposed to pursue honesty as part of righteousness. We are to not gossip. Not gossip. You guys, I don't have to explain gossip. You know what gossip is. But also, we need to not allow gossip to be told to us. So that person that came to you and said, let me tell you something about Jan, you go, whoa, 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 I don't want your gossip. If that's what you're doing, just keep it or toss it out or get rid of it because as part of pursuing righteousness, we are to not partake in gossip. And sometimes it's so hard. It's just a meaty little something. You just might be like, ooh, I don't know. Tell me, what, tell me something I don't know. But the Holy Spirit is supposed to be like, shh, no. Are you guys talking? Because I can't hear. <laughs> Keep their, your promises. That's part of righteousness is someone who keeps their promises. Are you a promise keeper? Did we just sing that? Is God, that's characteristic of God, a promise keeper, right? Are you just so flippant with your promise to be like, oh, I will be there at six, I promise. 7.30 rolls around, you're like, I'm, you know. Eh. Keep your promises. Don't take bribes. That one we already are. That's what we're looking at right here. Don't take bribes. Love 
mercy. Love mercy. This is a part of pursuing righteousness. Do not get puffed up, but remain humble. Remain humble. How easy is it to get puffed up? For some of us, it's, you know, (laughs) it's easy to get puffed up. It's easy. It's much harder to stay humble. Stay humble. Forgive. Forgive. You know what the hardest part about forgiveness is? Forgiving somebody who just doesn't think they need to be forgiven. And it's not your job to convince that person, you know, you really should come and ask for for forgiveness so that I can forgive you and then we can just move on. If you're waiting for that, you probably will never see that happen. The Bible doesn't talk about extending forgiveness to the people who come to you and say forgiveness. You all are supposed to do that. But what it says is we're supposed to forgive whether they ask for it or not. Holding on to forgiveness is poison. It will poison your soul. Forgive. Pray without ceasing is a characteristic. One who prays without ceasing is a characteristic of righteousness. Now, I've I know you know this, but I feel like we have to say it. it doesn't mean that you spend the entire day on your knees with your hands folded and you're praying to God, especially if you're driving. Don't do that. It means being in constant communication with your Lord who is with you no matter where you are. Constant communication, praying without ceasing. These are just some of the aspects of righteousness that we are supposed to be chasing after. Righteousness, righteousness, pursue righteousness, he says. In verse 21, he says, you shall not plant for yourself any tree. That's random. No planting tree. Sean, guys, Sean, Rachel, sorry. You're going to have to find a new business. Sorry. You're not supposed to plant any tree. Or wooden image near the altar, which you build for yourself for the Lord your God. See, in Hebrew, that word actually is not tree. It's fetish of happiness or grove. Now, we talked about this several weeks ago when he was saying, go in and tear down the altars and the pillars and the statues and the groves, because these were groves of trees that were set up to worship Ashtoreth, the the fertility god. And so they would go in there and they would, you know, worship in the bushes with one another um, in a a very impure and horrible way. And so they were told to go in and tear out all of the groves, all of these fetishes of happiness. And that's what he's reminding them once again, when you go in, don't plant any of these groves. Don't plant any of these uh, tree formations that will allow you to be sucked into a form of worship that they have been told over and over and over again to avoid. And once again, you see here right before it goes in, it ends the chapter with this idea of Don't get sucked into the way the world worships. Why does he keep going over this? This is maybe like the 12th time that we've talked about this. Why does he keep bringing this up? Because it will be so tempting and so easy for them after so many days or months or weeks, years in the land, for them to look at how the other people around them are worshiping and say, well, they seem happy. What's Really, what's wrong with what they've got going on? It can't be wrong. Maybe it's just a different choice, and it doesn't actually look that bad. And so they slowly decline into idolatry. Maybe some of you have experienced this or know what I'm talking about. Um, I went to church, as I mentioned, 
my whole life growing up, several times a week, um, heard about Jesus, sang the songs, onward Christian soldiers, come on, I'm the only one? I am a C, I am a C-H, I am a C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, and I have C-H-R-I-S-T-M-A-H-E-R-T, and I will L-I-V-E-T-E-N-L-Y. No? Just me? All right. However, when I was out of my parents' care and into college, and no one was making me go to church anymore, I didn't go. I thought, I know enough about this. I know about all this whole Jesus thing and God and all that. And if I don't have to get up and go to church Sunday morning, if I don't have to go to church Sunday night, if I don't have to go Wednesday, I'm not gonna go. And I started that slow decline into everything that the world had to offer. Now, we didn't have statues and and asterisk poles and things that we were worshiping, but I was looking out at what the world had to offer and thinking, that looks pretty good. And I just started, and it wasn't all, all at once. It was a slow decline. It was subtle. And I found myself, I just, I remember saying these words to somebody, God, he, you know, God is whatever you need God to be. If he's a tree, he's a tree. If he's a force, he's the force. If he's some religious thing. I said that. I remember it. God has given me that memory to hold on to so that I can remember from where I came into a slow decline into idolatry, what the world had to offer me. And that's really, that's why it's so important. It's so easy. It's even, it's easy for us now to look out there and be like, you know, I know, look out and see what's going on in the world and say, it's not so bad. Look how, they look happy. Don't they look happy? Look a little deeper. They're not happy. They're not happy. He warns them again. Do not, he says, you shall not set up a sacred pillar for the Lord. Your God hates it. God hates that. He hates idol worship. Why does God hate idol worship? Well, number one, because he says, I'm a jealous God. And you're mine and only mine. And I'm not going to share you with anybody else. And anything or anyone that pulls you away from worshiping me, that's big trouble. Big trouble. It says God hates that. Now, verse 17, uh, excuse me, chapter 17, verse 1. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or a sheep with any blemish or defect, for, the, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. And so you remember, with, with many of these feasts, they were required to bring a sacrifice. And we talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago, where we said, God wants your first and your best. No leftovers. Remember? No leftovers. Leftovers bad. He wants your first and he wants your best. And he reiterates it now here in chapter 17, verse 1. Don't bring a bull or sheep or any kind of a sacrifice that has a blemish or a defect. Or sometimes we say a spot or a blemish. A blemish or a defect. Um, I, I want to I explain this a little bit to you, okay? The reason why he puts them both in because they, they mean slightly different things. Um, uh, a defect or a spot is like a, a lamb or a goat or something being born with something that made it not 
whole or perfect. It could have even been like a white sheep, but it had like a black spot on its face. That was unacceptable for uh, sacrifice. So anything that it was born with that made it imperfect was not acceptable. And blemish is a mark or something that it gets um, from an outside source. Like, uh, for example, um, when the sheep were all together herded and they were in a crowd and they were walking along, if one bigger sheep stepped on, let's say, a littler sheep's foot or something and it, like, it caused a scar or a cut, that was a blemish. That Now that sheep was unacceptable. So it was saying that there, there can be nothing in your sacrifice that you need to bring, that it can't be born imperfect and it cannot have rubbed up against anything or become blemished as it comes into contact with the world around it. That was the sacrifice that needed to be brought and offered. Now, let me just check to make sure I didn't write something really profound. <laughs> In several places, the Bible calls us to be without blemish when we come to the Lord. That's why this is important to understand. That means that what we are supposed to do is keep ourselves from becoming blemished by the world around us, right? That means like if we're, if we're too close to the, the pack, we might get stepped on or scarred or marked by the world around us. Every once in a while... I'll be leaving in the morning and I'll have this really clean pair of khaki pants on. And I'll walk out to my car, which is not really clean, um, and I'll rub up against it by accident, trying to slip through the cars in my driveway. I'll slip through and uh, I'll rub up against my car. Now, what happens when I get a dirty spot on my pants, but on my car, there's a little clean spot where I just rubbed up against it, right? Now, Here's the thing, okay? When I rub up a clean thing against a dirty thing, when I rub my clean pants against my dirty car, we would look at my pants and say, my pants are dirty. One little spot, my pants are dirty. Would you ever look at your car and say, my car is clean now? No, your car is still dirty. It just has a little clean spot. But now the little dirty spot on my pants makes my pants dirty. Do you see what I'm trying to say? No. <laughs> What I'm trying to say is that if you get too close to the world and they're filth and it rubs on you a little, you're dirty. You've not cleaned up the world. You're now blemished. The thing is that um, we can never, as people, be spotless, right? We can never claim. We maybe can try and keep ourselves from being blemished, but we can't claim to be born without spot. We have the spot of sin on our lives when we're born, in case you didn't know. However, there was one who came, who was the final and perfect sacrifice, who was born perfect without spot, and who lived a life without sin. And he was born without spot and, without, and, and never blemished, and that was Jesus. Jesus was the one who could then be that sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that would come without spot or blemish or blemish and wrinkle, or however it is you find it in your, word, in, your, in your Bible. Jesus came and he fulfilled that sacrifice on our behalf because we could not be without spot. Maybe we could be without blemish, but we can't be without spot. 
Only Jesus could be without spot and blemish, born perfect, lived a sinless life. That's why he was the one that had to be the perfect and final sacrifice, as he talks about here, the lamb or the bull that that would be brought. If, verse 2, if there's found among you within any of your gates which the Lord God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, either the sun or moon or any other host of heaven which I have not commanded, and it is told to you and you hear it, and then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is indeed true and and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed the wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or that woman with stones. First of all, this is not the first time that we've looked at it. Um, and this idea that they were able to do this then because they were both the civil and the religious law contained in one body. That's not the case anymore, but at that time, that's how God had designed it for them, that they were able to institute civil law as well as moral law and religious law all together. But this is uh, a couple of things that I want to point out to you here. Those first, in verse 2, those, ver- those lines indicate that this person, it was an intentional move away from God. It says that they were doing it in the sight of the Lord, which means they were doing it out in, in the middle of, uh, out in the open, not hidden necessarily, and that they had gone on to serve other gods and worship them. And so this was something, uh, an intentional move that this person, I'm sorry, I just realized I do this a lot. I don't know what I'm, <laughs> this was an intentional move that this person was doing, going out to worship. He was rejecting God and going out to worship other gods. But look what this says right here. And it is told to you and you hear of it and you shall inquire diligently. You shall inquire diligently. That doesn't mean that one person comes to you and goes, you know what I heard? I heard that so-and-so goes off to the Ashtoreth pole in that forest grove and, and they're worshiping other gods. And you say, let's get the stones. It says that you're supposed to inquire diligently. That means that you are supposed to go and gather all the information about this that you can find out. You know, this is so important in a, in a lot of our lives because how often do you hear the story from one person and then jump to the conclusion, I know all the facts. I've heard one person tell me the story and now I know everything there is to know about this. And so clearly... I am justified in, in, in judging that person and the situation right now. Did you diligently search that out? It doesn't sound like it to me. We jump to conclusions. We think that we've got all of the information, and then we make a judgment. I see the Bible says, inquire diligently. Go out, and if someone comes to you and says, well, this is what I heard, and I think this is what's going on, just to say, okay, I'll look into that. Let me look into that. Let me reserve judgment until I feel as though I have gathered all the facts, diligently searched out a thing. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or the woman who has committed that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death 
On the testimony of two or three witnesses, he shall not be put to death at the testimony of one witness. So this seems pretty harsh, though. I mean, I know that people will look at this and be like, man, that, that, that does seem like a mean God. You know, he's just kind of like, you need to kill that person. There's no, you know, like, you know, if they're, if they're worshiping idols, well, think it through a little bit. Think it through, first of all. This is someone who's going out there choosing to reject God and go and worship other gods. But remember what we talked about in all the other chapters, because you have to see this in context. What was the biggest fear, really, that that person was going to get another person and that person was going to get two more people and they were going to draw people away? Remember, it talked about in a couple of chapters ago, it was like, well, this is what you do if it's one person. But what happens if you don't go and deal with that one person? That one person goes to a city and pretty soon the entire city is defiled. And now you've got to deal with an entire city. And God is saying, if you deal with it the way I'm telling you to deal with it, then you can end it. We look at God now and we say, well, oh, goodness, thank, thank you that you know, God is so much linear, 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 lenient, er, <laughs> on sin these days. Shoo, I'm, I'm so glad that, the, that sin doesn't carry the same consequence as it did back then. It does, though, doesn't it? See, the consequence of sin is death. The wages of sin, it says in Romans, is death. The wages of sin is death. The cost of sin is death. God still deals with sin in the same way. Sin is connected to death, but the difference between then and now, you know what? I wrote this verse down. Someplace. (laughs) I don't know where it went. But I remember it. The wages of sin is death. That's the bad news, right? But the good news is in the second half of that verse. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? See, that's the thing. God still requires the payment of death for sin, but it's not on you because Jesus paid it all. It says the wages of sin is death. This is in Romans where, guys? 10? Thank you. 623, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, he said, you know what? I'm going to take that consequence of sin and I'm going to put it all on my son, Jesus, who will die so that you don't have to pay the consequence of sin with your life. And in fact, it's a payment that Jesus makes. On the cross, he uses the very words, when it was finished, he's up on the cross, he says, it is finished it's tetelestai. It's basically what they would write on the bottom of a sales receipt that says paid in full. Jesus says, there is a cost to sin, but I paid it for you. I paid it for everyone in full. So it's not like God is like, like winking at us when we say, oh, you know, that's a sin. You know, I don't, I don't think about sin like I used to. No, he does. But he put that all on his son, Jesus. And Jesus died for you and for you and for me. Thank you. The hand, uh, so then it says, the hands of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death. You know, it says here that you need two or three witnesses and not just two or three witnesses. Their stories have to agree. Do you remember when they tried to bring Jesus before uh, the, the high priest and they got two or three people to bear false witness? It says, but they couldn't get their stories to agree. They couldn't even get two or three people to say the same things. 
and yet they still killed Jesus. That's because it really wasn't in their hands, was it? It was God's plan. And God says, I've already determined to see my plans through from the very beginning. So it doesn't matter what they did or didn't do. That was what was going to happen. But the hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people, so you shall put away the evil from among you. Now, if a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall rise up and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. That is going to be the tabernacle until they build the temple in Jerusalem, and then it will be the temple. So when he says at the place where God chooses, it's one of those two places, at the tabernacle or at the temple. Now, what do those two, regardless of where the tabernacle is, have in common? That is where God dwells. Okay, I totally understand that it's like he dwells in heaven. But when we say that, we go, this is the dwelling place of God among the people. Was that the tabernacle or in the temple? And so what this is saying is, if you have a matter that is too hard for you to discern at your level, then you go to where God is, or else we would say, you take it to God. So he says, and you shall come to the priests, the Levites, to the judge there in those days and inquire of them, and they shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. And so if you remember way back when we went through the book of um, Exodus, and we're talking about the priestly garments and all they had, they had this breastplate with the stones on it, and they had something that they would use for decision-making or judgments called ermathumen. The Urim and the Thummim, Thurum, Umen, what is it? Ur, now I can't remember. The Urim and the Thummim, okay? And it was a combination of white stones and black stones, and they would have a little pocket, and they would pray and ask God for his answer, and then they would take it out, and it would tell them, based on whether it was the black stone or the white stone or some combination, we're not really sure exactly how it worked, that it would give them what God's answer was. And I guess they always had to phrase it in a yes or no kind of a, uh, away, but that's what this is saying is if you come to a decision that your judges are not able to make, then bring them to the place where God is and inquire of God and God will give you the answer. If you find yourself in a place where, you know, God has given us a brain and he's given us wisdom and understanding. And so we are able to solve a lot of our own problems and answer a lot of our own questions. But many times we come to a place where we just don't know what to do or what to say, and we don't know where to go. And the Bible is saying, why don't you just come to God? And why don't you bring it to the Lord and say, what should I do? What should I do, Lord? Now, if you do that, and he tells you, you must do it. That is what this next part says. He says, you shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the Lord chooses, and you shall be careful to do according to all that they offer you. So when you come and they brought something to the, the high priest and they inquired using the, the stones, and the answer was this, they had to abide by that. Or there were serious consequences. In the same sense, if you come to God and say, Lord, what, you know, um, what should I do about this thing, this person, this situation? And you get a clear answer from God's word. It's confirmed by somebody else. And you're just like, mm, 
that's not really what I want. I wasn't, that's not what I was going for. Did you ever ask God for an answer and he gives you one and you're like, that, did I not ask right? God, that's not what I was hoping for. That is not what I was hoping for. God says, just do what I ask. Now, he, you know that it would be the best thing, right? Because God is um, smarter than me. God knows. God stands outside of time. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow and next year and, and 10 years from now. Um, I don't. I kind of know what's going on this afternoon, but that's about it. And I'm not even sure about that. My wife has got something going on and I didn't know. And, and uh, it involves salad. Thankfully, I'm not a part of it. Yet I feel like I'm just completely capable of making all these really hard life decisions without any other guidance. What's the matter with me? Well, sometimes when you bring it to God and God says, go this way, you're thinking, yeah, but I was thinking right, actually, God. According, so we are supposed to do according to what God tells us to do. Verse 11, according to the sentence of the law which they instruct you, according to the judgments which they tell you, you shall do, and you shall not turn aside to the right hand or the left hand, from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. Now the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, the man shall die. You shall put away the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. And so what he's basically saying is that the consequences are dire. If you come before the Lord in this situation and the, the, God tells the priest, this is the answer, and you go, well, I'm not going to do that anyway, then, the, the, then you were to be put to death at that point because that was going to cause evil to spread throughout the people. And he says, I will not allow it. But think about it. What he's talking about is this is the one, this is the man who decides, the man or woman who comes to God and God says, go this way or that way, do this or such. And you say, you know what? No, never mind. I'm not going to do that. Because in that instance, literally you are rejecting God. And what are you saying? I'm smarter than you are, God. I know more about this. Or uh, this would be better for me. Or I don't care at all what it is that you're saying. I'm going to do whatever it is that I want to do. Now, I mean, I've done that, actually. Um, and thankfully, no one took me out and stoned me in the parking lot. So God is more lenient in that sense. But what did I miss out upon on by not doing what it was that God had told me to do? I actually think that will be revealed when I get to heaven. I think that God will actually show me in that time where he's reviewing my life, reviewing every word I ever said, every deed I ever did, and by the way, that is coming, that he'll say, look at these blessings that I had for you, but you chose to go this way. And I think in that moment, I will just weep and weep. And I love that the Lord, the Bible says that he just wipes away those tears. And he says, here are your crowns. Well done, good and faithful servant. And blam! The memory of it's gone. I would like that to be a very short time in my judgment. So I'm going to do whatever it is that God tells me to do, no matter how hard or scary or, or unknown or mysterious it seems. And when you come into the land, verse 14, when, which the Lord your God is giving you and possesses it, possess it to dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations that are around me. 
So this hasn't happened yet. You know, they haven't even gone into the land yet. And he's saying, at some point, you're going to get into the land, you're going to look around, and you're going to be saying, you know what, enough of these judges, we want a king, just like everyone else. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, I'm just going to turn there for a minute. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to jot it down and go back in yourself, this is 360 years after they come in, okay? It says that they came to Samuel, who was their uh, judge, and he says, now make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. So they come and they say, you know what? Enough with these judges. We want a king. Everybody else has a king. Why can't we have a king? And so Samuel, he's really upset. And he goes to God and he says, God, they don't like me. They don't want me to be their judge. They want a king. They want a king like everybody else. And God says, you know what, Samuel? They haven't rejected you. In fact, he says right here, they've rejected me. Um, that I should reign over them. He see, God says, they want a king. I am their king. I am their king. Did you know that monarchy is God's preferred form of government, but it is only when you have a perfect sovereign king. That's the only time that works, and the only time it will ever work is when God is perfect and sovereign, which he is, but, his, uh, but in your life, sovereign in your life. He says, I need to be the king of your life. When, when heaven is uh, brought down and it's a new earth and all of this at the end, it will be a perfect monarchy in place with God on the throne and he is perfect and everything will be perfect. But until that time, you get what you get. We've got something, they've got something, theirs isn't working, ours works a little, that one works okay. Some people have monarchies, some people don't. Um, it is only until God is the monarch that it is a perfect system. But these people come and they say, um, we want a king. We want, everybody else is a king. We want a king. We're different. We don't want to be different. Which, actually, which is such, such a crazy thought because the entire message that God kept on giving them is be different. Don't eat these things so you're different. You be circumcised so you're different. You uh, don't marry many wives so that you're different. Do all these things so you're different. You have judges over you and a high priest who answers to God. That makes you different. And they're like, but we want a king, so we're the same as everybody else. And God says, they're rejecting me in doing that. So then God says, okay, go ahead. Tell them they can have a king, but tell them this. And, and Samuel goes on, he goes, they're going to require your sons. They're going to require your daughters. They're going to take a tenth of everything that you have. They're going to um, send your children into war. All of this is going to happen. And in verse 19 of chapter 8, second, uh, 1 Samuel says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. They wanted to be like everybody else. It's so dangerous, but it's so tempting, isn't it? Remember when you were in like middle school? You just wanted to be like everybody else. I just want to fit in. I want to be like, I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be different. And then you get into high school and, and uh, it was too late. I was already different. <laughs> There's this, you know, you, you go into a crowded room and you're like, Maybe you're just like, I just want to blend in. I just want to be like everybody else. They wanted to be 
like everybody else, but the everybody else they wanted to be like were worshiping idols, sacrificing their children, uh, being wrapped up in sexual immorality and impure practices. But they wanted a king like everybody else. And so you know the story. God gives them Saul. Do you know what it says about Saul? He was the best-looking guy on the planet. And he was tall, too. He was tall and good-looking. And they are like, oh, yeah, that's the king we want, right? And he did okay for a little while. And then he, you know, lost his mind. And then God said, okay, now it's time for the king that I would choose. You know, he sent Samuel to the house of Jesse. And he says, Jesse, you got any sons? And he's like, oh, do I? Look at this guy right here. And Samuel is even like, yes, that's the guy. And he's getting out his oil. And he goes to pour it. And God says, nope, not him. And so then Samuel goes, okay, you got another one? And he goes down the line, each one, you know, a little shorter and a little less good looking down the line, you know. And every time he's like, huh, God, huh, huh? And God's like, nope, nope, nope. And they get to the end. He's like, Jesse, you got any more sons? He's like, well, I got this hippie out in the field watching the sheep, you know. And so they go out and they bring David and he's small and it says he's ruddy. And I don't really know what that means. I guess he had red hair or something. I don't know. Maybe he ran in so his face was all red. And God says, that's the one right there. That's the, guy, that's the guy that I pick to be my king. And we know David was an amazing king, a man after God's own heart, right? Because God saw beyond what everybody else saw. And he finally, he gave them a king. But that, even David wasn't God's design, David wasn't God's design. David was a, God that got, that, a guy that God chose to lead them. But God would say, I'm your king. I'm your king. I'm perfect. I'm sovereign. I'm, I, there's there's no, no, no thing to worry about. But they were determined to have a king. And then, and then you know, it just goes on and on. And then Solomon comes after David. And Solomon was, well, we're going to see in a minute. I mean, he was something, but he was really something after that as well. And then he just kind of, he also loses his mind. And I don't know what the deal is with these kings. And then after Solomon, the whole kingdom just gets split. It's mostly bad kings. Anyway, sorry. <clears throat> so he says, you will surely set a king over all the Lord. For the Lord chooses one from among your brethren, and you shall set as king over you, and you may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. And neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver or gold for himself. These, this isn't the job description for king. This is the character that he wants the king to have. And yet, they get to the point where they have Solomon now king over them. Remember, God comes to Solomon. He says, oh, you're going to be king and, and uh, ask of me anything that you would, and I'll give it to you. And, and uh, riches and power. And Solomon says, you know what, God? I don't actually know how to be king. So if you could give me a heart that hears. We say wisdom. But in Hebrew, it says a hearing heart. He wanted a heart that would hear his people. And God was like, I'm going to give you that. And I'm going to give you silver and gold and, and power and all that as well. And so Solomon was this amazing king. But if you read on in 1 Kings, you get a look into Solomon's life a little bit. It actually says that Solomon went in and bought horses from Egypt. And he sent his people to go and buy horses from Egypt. Now, hang on a minute. 
but you shall not multiply horses for yourself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt. He wasn't supposed to do that, and yet he did. It also says that he wasn't supposed to multiply wives for himself. How many wives did Solomon have? So many wives and concubines and princesses and so many. It says that Solomon and, and Solomon loved foreign women, it said. And I don't think he was married to the Queen of Sheba, but I think he knew her in a biblical way, if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> He shall not greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Do you know it says that Solomon had so much silver that he made it as common as stones in his kingdom? So much silver. So if you were to go out to the parking lot and grab up a handful of stones, that would be like how much silver Solomon had. Wasn't supposed to do that, but that's what he had. Also, by the way, as a point of reference, you could find in the same chapter, maybe it's chapter 10, where it says that his annual income that he took in was 666,000 shekels of gold. That's interesting. I, but I'm not a numbers guy. You know the, I mean, if, you, if you've not heard this before, you know, that number is like though the number of the beast, but it really is the number of man, isn't it? Six, six is the number of man, seven is that perfect number of God. So when you see things like God's like, hey, here's a feast day, celebrate it for seven days. That's because it's the perfect feast that I'm giving to you. If you do it for six days, it's because you've decided to do it for six days and it's your number, it's your, it's man. Solomon was blessed by God, but then he went in and further blessed himself by going against what God had said. He multiplied horses, he multiplied gold and silver, he multiplied wives for himself, right? All of the things that God said that a king is not supposed to do, which really kind of leads me back to that place of God is the only sovereign king. And it shall be as he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book for the one before the priests and Levites, and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. That's so important. It's, that part is so important. If you've never seen that or you're marking your Bible, just, just highlight or circle or underline because what God was saying is if, if this guy is going to be a true king, a real follower of me, what he needs to do is write out a copy of the law. Essentially, he's basically saying, you know, here's the Bible. Make yourself a handwritten copy of it, king, to make sure that he goes through it, and then keep it with you all the days of your life. What great advice. Now, you know, you don't have to actually go now and handwrite a copy of the Bible, although that would be interesting. I mean, if, I wonder how long it would take for you to, you know, in your spare time, handwrite a copy of the entire Bible. And how many little black and white notebooks would that take? But, but the idea is that they would know the word, that they would know the word. And based on knowing the word, they would be able to make good and just judgments. And they were to keep it with them all of their days. Now, we're pretty fortunate. Now, you can, you can get the entire Bible on your phone, stick it in your pocket, and walk around thinking, I got the Bible with me all the time. It's not helping you if you're not reading it, though, right? I mean, if you're not taking that out and going through, let me open up my Bible app, you can have it in your pocket, but really, it's not doing anything for you. Um, if you find yourself like saying that to yourself, like, oh, I've, I've got the Bible in my pocket, but you're never reading it, actually get a Bible. 
Like carry it around with you for a little while. See what, it, see what it feels like to have a Bible in your car, to bring a Bible into your office, to, to have a Bible with you, to have God's Word with you all the time, and write notes in it, and, and, and highlight and circle, and, and, and see what it's like to have God's Word with you all the time. <sighs> Verse 20, this is the heart, that his heart may be lifted above his brother, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom and he and his children in the midst of Israel. And we're done with chapter 17 today, ladies and gentlemen. Well, there's so much. I'm not even going to recap. You take home what it is that you took from today, and we're just going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the word today, for this chapter, and for how you spoke to us, Lord. I thank you so much for these folks who've come because they want to hear from you, Lord. I pray that each person here heard something from the Lord today, that they take it home with them, Lord, that they ponder it, that they ruminate uh, on it, Lord, uh, over and over and over again. Lord, I pray that maybe we each go out here a little bit changed than, than how we came in this morning, Lord. Lord, let us pursue and chase after righteousness. Lord, let us look to you as our sovereign king. Let us bring our uh, questions, our worries, our, our uh, directions to you, Lord. To, and show us which way to go, Lord. Give us the strength and the boldness to follow no matter what you say. We thank you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.